0: Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Stephen Johnson. He's written such books as The Ghost Map and Where Good Ideas Come From. Today we'll talk about Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy, power, and the history's first global manhunt. It's a 17th century story that's rife with insights for today. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about food as medicine, steamed vegetables and perhaps more steamed vegetables, or would that be chocolate and wine? All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2010, I spoke with UC Berkeley professor Ken Goldberg about a project he was working on with the U.S. State Department called Opinion Space. I needed him to be clear. The U.S. State Department wanted my opinion.
2: Yes, they do. Actually, it's a very exciting development. Because they didn't want it before. They didn't really. Well, <laughs> oh, they no.
0: did, but they had no way to get it.
2: <laughs> well, part of it was uh, was Obama and coming in with an agenda to really be much more inclusive, politics 2.0, and all of that. So Hillary Clinton was very interested in casting a wider net, really getting ideas not only from the diplomats and the experts, but from everyone worldwide, not just Americans. everybody worldwide. Exactly. So it's a very bold and in some way, I think, it's a risky idea to sort of open the doors and see what comes in. They've had a blog for about, but it's very heavily edited. But the
0: problem with the blog is that there's all this text and everybody's got to read all that stuff. To get to the essence of it, you need other tools, and I guess that's where opinion space comes in.
2: Right. So one of the things we're excited about is that lists don't scale well. So the example we give is that Mark Zuckerberg gave an announcement about Facebook a couple months ago, and he got 35,000 responses. He's still reading them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We calculated it would have taken eight days of reading to just get through that list. So nobody's going to read those. And one of the things that so many of the the websites now have its participatory Web 2.0 is about participating. So everybody's submitting their comments, but we don't have tools to manage those very well. So we got interested in the idea of how to apply visualization tools and multidimensional visualization to addressing these problems.
0: Okay. So if I go out to state.gov slash opinion space, what do I see?
2: Okay. So you come to a site that...
0: Which is the Department of State site. It's a State Department site.
2: Right. So it's on their website, and what you do is you can immediately participate by expressing your opinions on five topics... And those have to do with the empowerment of women, the role of nuclear proliferation. And the way you do that is different than just a binary check box like a questionnaire. We're interested in the idea that you can move this. Your, your response is a continuous value.
0: So it's a slider. Right. Strongly agree to strongly disagree. And they all start in the middle, like eh, ambivalent.
2: <laughs> right. And then you click go. And you come to a, a now a visualization that shows you where you stand as a point in a well, the metaphor is a nighttime sky, you're a star in a galaxy of all the other participants. So they take the
0: the reaction, the slider reaction, to each of the five questions and somehow come together into who agrees with you, who doesn't agree with you.
2: Right. So the idea there is that as you express your opinions, you define a point in a five-dimensional space. And so what we use is techniques called dimensionality reduction to project that down onto a two-dimensional plane so that you can see it but you can show everybody everybody appears in the plane and the people who you agree with who have similar opinions to you will be close to you in that space and people who are far away will be people that are have very different opinions so i was right in the middle with this really big circle and look like everybody agreed with me. Are you always in the middle? <laughs> no, no. Um, actually, that's interesting that you, you found yourself in the middle. One of the things you can do is once you get to that point, you see the visualization, you can then change your opinions by moving the slider and you can see yourself move, how you would move in the Other space. friends. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but the one thing that we, we think is interesting is that immediately when you do this, you, you, you see something interesting, which is that you're not alone.
0: You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with UC Berkeley professor Ken Goldberg. Today, Ken holds the William D. Floyd Jr. Distinguished Chair in Engineering at UC Berkeley. And the opinion space address at the U.S. State Department? Well, let's just say the U.S. State Department has gone back to not really wanting my opinion. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, Stephen Johnson joins me to talk about a story from the 17th century that's filled with twists, turns, and plenty of insights. He's here today with Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy, power, and history's first global manhunt. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, talks about the growing field of food as medicine and the science that backs it up. It's all about the effects of food we really didn't understand before, and we can today. And now, Stephen Johnson. Well, Stephen, welcome back to Tech Nation.
3: It's great to be back.
0: Well, there are pirates in the Indian Ocean today attempting to take over tankers and container ships, but these were not the first pirates trolling the Indian Ocean.
3: Yeah, this book kind of begins, although the actual event itself actually really takes place chronologically in the middle of the story, with a heist that takes place, a kind of a a clash between an Indian treasure ship and a a British pirate ship in the Indian Ocean, in this case just off the, the coast of India itself near the port town of Surat. But that area where the Somali pirates today are still (laughs) practicing the trade of being pirates, is central to this story in this book. Um, It's this area right um, south of the kind of mouth of the Red Sea. And In 1695, when the events of this book take place, these Indian treasure ships would come down from both from Mecca, where they would go on religious pilgrimages for the Hajj, but also they would trade along the way to places like Mocha. And so it was known that there was immense amounts of wealth coming through this kind of narrow channel and then in the the Gulf of Aden that's right there. So it was. It was a place where pirates liked to congregate. And interestingly, here we are more than three hundred years later, and it's still a place that pirates like to congregate. They just are. It's money generated by oil now, um, but it's it's still a, a good place to be a pirate.
0: Well, that's a good point. Today it's oil, and what pays for that oil—the people who sell it and the people who receive it—that's all done. Wirelessly, mm-hmm. It used to be that money had to change hands, whatever money was, whatever currency was or uh, gold or silver or whatever it was. You had to physically move it.
3: Yeah. And, and in some ways, you know, one of the things that I, I find so fascinating about this story that kind of drew me into it is that a number of the systems that we now take for granted in the world are are visible in in this period in the in the late 1600s, but they're in a very early kind of tentative version of themselves. So international trade and the flow of money around the world um, that we now take for granted that, as you say, is converted you know uh, over uh, you know the internet networks at lightning speed um, that is certainly part of the world system in the late 1600s. And information has begun to flow around the world. Um, the the chase that uh, that emerges, the kind of international manhunt for this pirate that emerges, it was only possible because there was an interconnected system where law enforcement could send out a notice to, to many ports around the world. The problem is, it was all just very slow and it was very physical and tangible. Um, and so, all the things that are, are now possible in, in our world were kind of barely possible then for the first time. And, and so it's it's this kind of fascinating glimpse of this uh, of the future in a sense, it's just as it's it's coming into being, you know, more than three hundred years ago.
0: Whenever anything is first, it's a miracle. It could happen.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, can you believe this?
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Before this, you you only have to go maybe a hundred years before this, or hundred and fifty years before this. They can't imagine launching anything global.
3: Yeah. I mean I, I think there's a legitimate question of whether you could have conducted an, an a global manhunt, which is what really is the kind of the second half of this story or second third of this story I mean, last third the of the story. The second third? Yeah, I, mean. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that means there's two <laughs> there's three thirds, the second third. Uh, it, it's it's a legitimate question whether you could have launched a a, a global manhunt a hundred and fifty years before. Certainly certainly the British couldn't have done it. Um because they just didn't have a kind of a global network of outposts at that point. But they were becoming this imperial power and this multinational kind of trading power by the end of the 1600s. And so they were able to kind of send out the alarm to various authorities around the world to say, look out for this rogue pirate. We're trying to find him. Um, But it was a a new idea, certainly.
0: And before we get to this pirate, you... Uh, and others including saint augustine have pointed out who's a pirate and who's an admired conqueror uh depends a lot on who gets the the booty and who's deprived of it
3: well th- you know a big thing that happens historically in this in this story is before the the events uh, that the the book recounts um particularly among the british there was a very blurry line around the kind of legality and legitimacy of pirates. So if you think about somebody um, like Sir Francis Drake, uh, who is a generation or a couple of generations before. Um, hero, but, Yeah, he's considered <laughs> a hero. And he, if you look at what he actually did over the course of his, you know, kind of naval career, he was clearly a pirate. Like he attacked a bunch of ships, stole their treasure, like did horrible things to people. Um, but because he was careful enough to, you know, not do that to other British ships, um, he returned as a hero and was knighted and, you know, became a legitimate member of society and bought a fancy estate and, you know, seemed to be, almost became a member of the aristocracy. And so that was the, the kind of status quo. And it was the difference, the technical difference was between being a privateer, which was legitimate, and being a pirate, which was not. Um, and this, the events of this story are really the point at which the, the it triggers a change where the British really have to say, you know what, we're not going to, if we're going to live in a world system of global trade and commerce, we're going to have to renounce piracy um, for once and for all.
0: Well, let's get to the central character. Let's get to that main story, that main event.
3: Well, it, it begins with a very strange, mysterious figure. And, and one of the Uh, You know, unusual things about writing this book is the protagonist, he's certainly not the hero, um, is is this fellow who had many names in the book. He's called Henry Avery or Henry Avery. And we know almost nothing about this guy until 1693. um, And we know almost nothing about him after 1696. (laughs) But for three years. (laughs) And, and half the stuff you heard in the in the interim wasn't <laughs> yeah. even true. I mean, there's a lot of legend <laughs> and rumor about it, but we but we do know a, a remarkable amount about that period, the three years in the middle when he became when he basically becomes the most notorious criminal in the world. Um, but effectively, what happens is, is that he joins a legitimate um, shipping operation. It's called Spanish Expedition Shipping, um, funded by some local. Uh, Brits in London um, becomes first mate of a of one of the of the flagship of this expedition, um, which was a, a newly built ship called the Charles II, and was probably one of the the the, the fastest boats on, on the water at that point. It was an ex- extremely kind of nimble um, vessel, and for various reasons, it, the, the, their voyage gets kind of caught up in this bureaucratic snafu, and they get stuck in Spain for a long period of time. And so every decides to lead a, a mutiny um and he takes over the the one ship the the Charles II uh with a smaller crew a bunch of people don't want to join the mutiny and he takes off and they, they rechristen uh the boat the Fancy which i think is a great name for a pirate ship <laughs> and and Avery has this very bold plan they're in spain so it actually would have been a lot easier for them to just kind of you know ride the trade winds over to the Caribbean and be pirates in the Caribbean, as it were, but um, but he has heard word about these treasure ships that are coming down the Red Sea, and so he at, concocts this bold plan to sail all the way around the Horn of Africa, um, provision for a while in Madagascar, and eventually makes his way into the Gulf of Aden and uh, and around the Indian Ocean, where this this heist takes place.
0: Well, we can tell the heist. We have, I've been su- it's such a struggle in a book like this. What do we say? What don't we say? Yeah. There's a bunch of things we're not going <laughs> <have> to say.
3: <laughs> well, the book. I think it's funny. It is, is different it's different from a lot of my books, right? Normally I could just come on and talk to you about them and tell you everything because it's but this one is a little bit of a page yeah. turner. We're not going to um, tell but, you
0: what happens to, to Henry. No. Yeah, no? but that, but yeah. but I think I
3: think <laughs> it is it, the the story of the actual confrontation because it's right. Right there at the beginning of the book, I think it's important to share. So basically, Avery's got his ship. He's got, a, he's got less than 200 men on board. And he, he runs into this um, massive Indian treasure ship. Um, the, the, the anglicized version of the ship's name is the Gunsway. Um, but in, in the original, the, the name of the ship translated into English means excessive treasure or exceeding (laughs) treasure, which is is not a good name for your ship if you're trying not to be attacked by pirates, right? You'd think you would call it no treasure here at all. (laughs) You know, look the other way. Look (laughs) elsewhere. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Um, So uh, by all reasonable expectations, um, the Fancy and Avery should have been massively uh, overpowered. But in this exchange between the two ships, this extraordinary kind of coincidence happens where these two events happen uh, dramatically to Avery's advantage. O- on, the, on deck, on board the Indian ship, one of the cannons uh, explodes, it malfunctions and explodes, and a cannon that malfunctions that way turns into a bomb, basically. And so uh, a number of people on board the Indian ship are immediately um, killed, and the deck of the ship catches fire and so on. And just at almost the exact same moment, uh, Avery's men, in one of their first uh, cannon fire, they split the main mast of the Indian ship in two, so that all the the, the lucky sails come sand. Just a crazy lucky shot. Odds of those two things happening is you know one in five thousand or something like that. So, so because of these two things, he's able to overpower the ship. His men board the ship, and what on board it they they find an immense amount of wealth, which they steal valued somewhere between 20 and a hundred million dollars in today's currency. So arguably one of the largest heists in the history of crime. But in addition to that, and this is crucial to the story, there are a number of religious pilgrims coming back from Mecca on board this ship, including a significant number of women, which was extremely unusual in 1695 to have a significant cohort of women on board a ship of any sort. and so a number of Avery's men end up raping the women, sexually assaulting them, and a number of the women commit suicide, throwing themselves overboard to avoid being defiled by the pirates. And this ship belongs to the leader of India, arguably the richest man in the world, Aurangzeb, the, the last of the Grand Mughals. Um, and so when Aurangzeb hears of this atrocious crime, both the sexual component of it and the and the money that's been stolen from him, including potentially some of his relatives among the women, um, he's obviously enraged. And what makes the story so significant on a global scale is that this is right at the moment when the East India Company is making the British East India Company, which is the first publicly traded multinational corporation in the history of the world, uh, you know, a, a prototype of Apple and Google and all the companies that have gone through IPOs in our day, um, the East India Company is making this immense fortune trading with India, importing calico and chintz and these fabrics that European men and women have become obsessed with. And so Arangza, because of this British pirate and his atrocious crime, threatens to evict the the East India Company altogether. It puts their people under house arrest, threatens to execute some of them. And so it's this massive geopolitical crisis Almost for the first um, time. There's a strange historical rhyme to the events in that um, the heist takes place on September 11th, 1695. And there there's a subtle kind of theme that runs through the book that that kind of discusses the parallels between the pirates and modern day terrorism, because. On the one hand, you have an international manhunt for this one guy, so it it has echoes of Bin Laden, of course. But on the other hand, it's it's this idea of kind of asymmetric um, effects on the on the world. That just as you could have you know 19 men and some box cutters on a few planes, and you could change everything in the world. Um, here, you had a situation where you had uh, you know under 200 men on a ship in the middle of the ocean, and, and just on their own, led by one kind of random guy, they could trigger these massive transformations around the world and, and involve these huge superpowers during the during the age. And it's kind of again, it's one of these points where it's like it was very hard to have that kind of effect on the world as a as a lone operator or just a couple hundred men um, before this period. But the world had just become interconnected enough that you could, as I say at some point, you know, kind of light a match at sets the whole world on fire, um, and this was, this was one of the first cases where that actually happened.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Stephen Johnson. You likely know him from one of his many books, including Where Good Ideas Come From and The Ghost Map. He's here today with Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy, power, and history's first global manhunt. i us just take a little break here and talk about some of this technology. I mean, it, it it was amazing to me to to really you know think about what are these ships like? You know, how yeah. big are they and how how do you have how many people on a ship? I mean, how much room can they have? How does that all work? Let's talk about these ships.
3: It, it was it, it it's a very extreme experience and and particularly for Avery and his men once they um Committed the crime, they basically avoided uh, any ports of call, and sailed all the way back around to ultimately to the Bahamas without they they made one quick stop in Reunion just off of uh, Madagascar and then sailed all the way around without stopping anywhere. So if you think about you know that kind of voyage over months at a time um, on this little you know again it was it was very sleek for its age, but it's a you know a couple hundred feet whatever it is, 40 feet wide.
0: How many, when they came back, were on that ship, do we figure?
3: Uh, When they... A bunch of them left at reunion, um, and then I believe that they had... I can't remember this off the top of my head, but I believe they had about 150 men. But one of the things that I love about it, so they they almost ran... Their provisions were very limited, right? Um, So when you're at sea for that many months, you just don't have a lot of room for food, and they... uh, We're getting near the Bahamas um, and we're about to start starving to death, Um, you know, and they're crammed in there. You're just sleeping, you know, below deck and the the ceilings are five feet high and they're in these, uh, you know, side by side in these hammocks. I mean, just, you know, just imagine just the physical density. It's like, you know, 150 people living in, you know, half a tennis court or something like that (laughs) with five foot ceilings. You know, that's what it was like. So at some point they... uh, Right as they're about to run out of food and water, they they make it to Ascension Island, which is one of the most remote islands in the world. It's kind of in the middle of the Atlantic. And um, nobody lives there. It's totally uninhabited. Uh, But they but in part because it's uninhabited, it was filled with all these giant sea turtles. And so they were like, oh, okay, we're not going to starve to death because we can eat turtle meat for the rest of this voyage. So they grab a bunch of the turtles and that's how they survive. But a few of the pirates on board the ship are so afraid to to go to the bahamas because the bahamas are controlled by the British. And so they think, listen, we don't know what's waiting for us there. We're going to show up in the Bahamas and we're just going to get arrested and hung immediately. Like, why would we do that? And so a bunch of the pirates choose to stay behind on Ascension Island, which is just incredibly remote. And no, that, that's how afraid they are of the law that they would rather just live with the sea turtles castaway style. Uh, and I don't, I, uh, in case this is your follow-up question, I do not know what happened to those pirates, <laughs> but I thought it was striking that they, that was the choice they made.
0: Well, one of the things that, uh, Comes to the fore here is how hard it is to find out information about all this. How did you research all of this?
3: You know, uh, it, it's an interesting story. I mean, there is a lot of ambiguity about some things in it, and part of, in a way, I think the fun of the book is talking about the things we don't know. Adds in some ways some some mystery to it. But uh, but but there there is a very important. I was lucky in some sense because. Without giving away too much, um, there's a there's a big show trial that happens in the last in the last third of the book, in the last kind of act of the book, um, where a number of the pirates are who are caught are, are put on trial in London. And because the British government wants to make a, an announcement to the world saying we are renouncing piracy, you know, please forgive us and forgive, you know, we, we do not support these people. They want to publicize the trial. And so they hire it a publisher to create a kind of verbatim transcript of the entire trial. And there are also a number of depositions that were taken that also became part of the public record. And so in this trial, a number of the pirates testify. Um, We know every word that was spoken in the trial. And during the depositions uh, and their interrogation on the stand, they describe all the major events of the voyage from the mutiny to the crime, including scenes with actual detailed dialogue, you know, where Captain Avery turned to me and he said, blah, blah, blah. And so for me as an author, I mean, I have a like a, I have a searchable PDF of this trial transcript um, that is just sitting on my desktop. And it means that I in all these scenes in the mutiny and other points, I can quote dialogue between the characters without making a word every line of dialogue quoted in the book is is based on actual direct testimony from the participants which is very unusual as I think you can imagine for events that took place more than 300 years ago um so it's a, it's a funny combination of there are some serious mysterious blank spots on the map of this story, and then moments of incredible clarity, uh, almost kind of cinematic realism that you get to do as an author, which made it a lot of fun to write.
0: And, of course, when you get cross-testimony, you start to get a timing to the dialogue,
3: you know, which you would yeah. get
0: in real life, you know.
3: Yeah, no, exactly. You get, And you can see there's The You know, it it becomes kind of sad in a way. The pirates are not supposed to be sympathetic characters in many ways, but there are a couple of them who arguably got kind of roped into it and did not actually want to go off on this mission. And on the stand, they have this, you know, maybe it's an act, but they have this kind of mournful presence and they're clearly they're not educated and they're surrounded by the, I mean, it's almost like the, the Supreme Court today had gathered to try these pirates, except that the judges were also the prosecutors, because the whole system was arrayed against them. And you can see how just kind of intellectually, you know, overpowered they are in this, in this situation. So it's, it's a very, it's an intense scene.
0: You've been listening to Stephen Johnson, the author of Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy. Power and history's first global manhunt. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the growing trend of looking at food as medicine. What's good, what's bad, and what we're only guessing at. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Stephen Johnson about his book "Enemy of All Mankind: A True Story of Piracy, Power, and History's First Global Manhunt."
3: The other document that's in there that I found, so I got obsessed with, is um, there's a there's a letter that Henry Avery writes, um, in a sense, to the general public, basically, to to b- before he commits a crime that he's got his plan and he basically is sending a message to other british ships saying i'm i'm not going to attack you just let me do my business here and i promise not to attack you if you put this sign up on your you know with uh, you know if you put if you hoist this sign up as some kind of symbol um i will i i will you know not attack your ships and He has these very enigmatic lines about how his men are hungry and he doesn't think he can control them. But it's the only document that we have that's really in Avery's voice himself. So here's this. Guy, I've been thinking about and basically kind of like living with in my mind for the last, you know, three or four years, and it's only kind of direct evidence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, there's another funny story about that actually, which I which I haven't isn't in the book because it happened after um, the book was finished. So, I got a call after the book was announced. I got a call from a a guy in in Rhode Island who is kind of an historian. Um, but he also likes to, you know, walk around on beaches with metal detectors, like looking for, you know, buried treasure, basically. And somehow he managed to find in Little Compton, Rhode Island, um, which is a town kind of near Newport, these Arabian coins that were minted in in 1694 or something like that, right when this crime happened. And he's, based on this evidence and a few other things, pretty interesting, he's developed this theory that Henry Avery stopped over after he went to the Bahamas, he stopped over in Rhode Island before maybe going on to Ireland, which is part of the whole mystery of his life. And he sent me this, information about a paper he'd written and all that. And, you know, I'm wondering what you think of this. It was very nice. We had a f- nice correspondence. But the thing I thought was so funny was my wife's family is from Rhode Island and and w- lived there during the like, original settlers in Rhode Island. Um, and so what I wanted to hear from this guy was uh, Henry Avery went to Rhode Island a- and changed his name to Robinson. And turns out, I've been raising his great, 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 great grandchildren after all this time. And that apparently is not true, unfortunately, because that would have been a great story. But so, <laughs> so close.
0: close, so <laughs> close. We have no DNA, so what can I? Yeah,
3: yeah. What can I, I can't say? Figure it out. Maybe, maybe it is.
0: Maybe could be. It could be true, ladies and gentlemen <laughs> of the jury. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> now, of course, I'm going to ask you about the media let's yeah. talk about the media then and and what happened because it you know you can't do a global manhunt without the media
3: yeah well in in a sense the 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 history of piracy from this period is is very intimately bound up with the emergence of n- new media systems in that period as well. So you you basically started to see for the first time this, what we would now call kind of tabloid media of, you know, uh, salacious stories of crimes and um, celebrities and things like that. But the problem back then is um, there really were no celebrities, right? There weren't a lot of famous people you could write about. There were, you know, kings and queens and You know, maybe some political figures like a town mayor or something like that and an archbishop or something like that. But you didn't have like a thousand reality TV stars that everybody knew or athletes or things like that. And so but there was clearly this market. If you could write about people and what they were doing, that would be interesting. And so criminals were central to these early forms of tabloid media. And pirates were some of the most famous criminals of the the time and made even more famous by these early media kind of entrepreneurs. And this was helpful to the pirates because if they developed a reputation for, you know, kind of bloodlust, then when they attacked a ship and somebody said, "Oh, that's Blackbeard. I've heard about him. I don't want to mess with him. Here's here's my exceeding treasure. You can take my treasure. I don't want," so they were they were useful to each other in that sense. But the other thing that I love is the the uh, primary way in which some of these stories were transmitted um, on the on the streets of cities is they were sung. Um, So they would print out these kind of broadsheets with the news of a terrible crime, but they would write the news in the form of verse and they would set it to the tune of kind of popular folk songs. And so some, you know, some guy would murder his wife and then they would write a song about like the notorious wife killer of Spath and they would set it to tunes. And so the first news of Avery's crime in the, in the, in the sense of his, the mutiny that he, committed um arrives in london in a song and it, it's it's we still we have the words for it it's they're in the book um and we even think we know the melody that it was sung to uh so and and the folks who would sell these um stories uh were called ballad mongers, and they would just sit on the street corner with their, you know, kind of broadsheets that they were selling, and they would just sing the news to people walking by. This is a, just a crazy <laughs> idea. I think we should bring it back.
0: <laughs> I like it. I uh, yeah. only wear a mask. Yeah. Only wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Well, you know, it, it just tells you the inventiveness of of communication and what attracts oh. people. Um, yeah. But also, uh, we forget how few people. Could actually read um, yeah. the uh, uh, one of the roads in Washington D.C. as you go up was really the post road, and the they, the ships would land and they would put the post you know on various you know tack it up up all the way up the street, and uh, you know for people to read. But frequently somebody would be there to read it, and even Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which you know was we were always told was a pamphlet, and this meant so much to you know the colonies and the truth was it was written to be read out loud
3: yeah and in in, in in bars
0: that in was bars. a big. That,
3: I <laughs> wrote about that a little bit in, in my book, Wonderland, because it's talking about the importance of those kind of informal spaces like bars and, and coffee shops and things like that. And so a lot of common sense. Let's bring that
0: back, Stephen.
3: <laughs> I know, I know. People reading aloud in bars. I mean, if they yeah. can read aloud in Zoom chats, they can read aloud in bars. I don't see why they can't do that. I
0: got your next book here. I want to hear it in a bar <laughs> near me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and just for a minute, I want to get back to. The all the technology on board these ships. I mean, for starters, uh, I mean, you said it right in the beginning. This cannon blew up. You know, there are more. When you ever go to a museum uh, with ships, uh, there are more stories about what went wrong with the cannon. The cannon rolled back, and this guy broke his arm. The cannon this misfired, that misfired. It it, it they couldn't really. Uh, they couldn't really position it to. It's like, why did they have cannon at all? You want to say?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, first of, it's an incredibly heavy thing, and so, and and then you have a ship that is rocking back and forth with the waves, and so the idea of you know, kind of taking aim. <laughs> with this thing and like trying to that's why the the actual shot on the mainmast is so miraculous because it's just the idea of being that precise you're huh? just kind of pointing, <laughs> pointing in the direction of the other ship and hoping something happens and every now and then something happens But and then they think with, with the cannon that explodes it can be, that can happen with improper maintenance basically where it's not cleaned properly between firing and there's a whole system that you had to have to kind of clean it after you fired it um, or it could have been an imperfection in the way that it was made. It was just a little crack there that survived, you know, multiple rounds of firing and then finally failed. Um, but either way, once it, once it fails, basically, you know, a cannon is just an extremely channeled explosion. So you've got all this explosive energy and you just kind of send it straight down this one shoot. But if... For some reason, something breaks. All that energy just goes off in all all the different directions um, with the shrapnel of the cannon itself exploding, and that's why it's so so incredibly deadly. And after
0: the first uh, firing, it's so hot yeah. that a whole lot of properties change.
3: Yes, yes. I mean, it's just, I mean... You might get one
0: off, and that'd be just <laughs> fine, but the second one, that's yes, no, <laughs> not so much. It's
3: amazing, it's amazing. <laughs> the other thing that, I, you know, honestly, I didn't, get as much information on as I'd wanted. It was one of the things on my kind of checklist that I'd never fully researched as much. But the navigation prowess uh, on They got this, to Ascension Island. I mean, Island. They, yeah, they got to Ascension <laughs> Island is crazy. But just, you know, just heading off um, on on a voyage where it had not been planned that they were going anywhere near the Indian Ocean, right? They Whatever was on board that ship in terms of maps and everything else was was designed to go to the Caribbean and Spain and come back and all that stuff. So so that they were able to do all of these journeys. I mean, Avery was apparently a, um, you know, we, we think he was a pretty experienced sailor. Um, but I was curious and it just wasn't able to find out whether he had some kind of genius navigator with him. Um, because, and, and, and really understanding a little bit more of like what technology they would have used to navigate, uh, I just—I'm I, sure there's—if I ever write a, a in a sequel, I'll dive into that a little more.
0: <laughs> How did you get onto this? How uh, did you find this?
3: Yeah. It's a funny thing. I, this has happened to me a couple of times. Actually, Ghost Map, the book that you mentioned briefly, it was like this as well. Um, I had the idea for the structure of this book years before— <laughs> I had ever heard of Henry Avery. So I wanted to write another book like Ghost Map that has ostensibly a single narrative, right? I mean, my books always go off in different directions. But uh, unlike a book like Where Good Ideas Come From, for instance, um, you know, this is a book that's got a plot um, and a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, But I was thinking that it would be interesting to write a version of that where you had one event that took place in a very short amount of time. And you could start the book with that event and then go back in time and describe all the forces and events, maybe going back thousands of years, potentially, that led to that moment. And then the second half of the book would be all the consequences of that event that went off in all these different directions. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want it to be something like Lincoln's assassination. I I wanted it to be something that people hadn't really heard of that nonetheless had an important impact in history. And I just I had that shape for a book in my mind for literally five or six years before I I came across this story. And what finally led me to it was I started thinking that it would be interesting to have the event be a crime of some sort. So in ghost map, it's a story of a kind of disease detective in a sense. So it's kind of a detective story trying to solve the mystery of where cholera is coming from, which is of course relevant to today. Um, And so it had that detective story. And I thought, what if there's a crime story? Because once you have a crime story, the reader, even even if you take them in a big journey across the world and through history and through technology and all these different things, there's the structure of the crime story that, that they recognize and will keep them reading because something bad has happened and the law enforcement are looking for this person and there's a trial. All those things are familiar. So that led me to... Then, so then I started just researching famous crimes from history or interesting crimes from history and eventually found my way to Avery because it is considered arguably one of the most lucrative crimes um and and honestly when i first read his story i thought this is clearly the book it's just has somebody already written it, it was my only, <laughs> it was my only concern
0: <laughs> yeah darn but uh but, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: but it, yeah it was it was once i saw it i was like this is the story i've been looking for for the past 6 years and then you got the the
0: the depositions and the uh, transcripts from the trial.
3: Wow. Yeah, because yeah. I, 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 I actually didn't fully realize the trial was going to be such a big part of it um, and was worried about because there is some ambiguity in, in what happens in the end. And and so for a while, I thought it's going to be a great story, but maybe the ending's not going to be totally satisfying. And then I realized how good the trial is and one, how detailed the information I was going to get on the trial was. But but also there's some twists in the trial that make for, I think, really um fun reading, and and that part of it I really didn't know, actually, until I started, until after I'd sold the kind of proposal to my publisher I uh, you know and dug into it I was like oh it's even better than I realized which is always a good sign when your, when your book yeah. is improving <laughs> yeah. the more you you dig into <laughs> as it as
0: opposed to yeah Gee, it sounded exciting at you, first but you don't they look at you, you and say it's that. really boring I've, I've had, yeah, we don't I've want had one
3: or two that have gone like that too so you <laughs> no, don't want that like that, <laughs> that.
0: And, and there's so much you 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 bring in the uh the the greater ideas of what what the implications were uh, in today's world from this incident. You draw that larger. And I keep thinking, and I'm sorry, but even independent of your book, we have this confluence of of pandemic. We have all of the social media, the technology, the communications. We have, it's going to be really interesting 100 years, 200 years from now to look back and see this perfect soup of, yeah. of things coming together uh, that yeah. we're experiencing now.
3: Yeah. Well, I was thinking about, it. I mean, on some level, I think this book, you know, it is really a story about globalization. And, and of course, pandemics, it's built right into their names. Like, they are about globalization as well. And the world becoming more interconnected um, is is what drives the events of this book and certainly what are driving the events of, uh, uh, of this year. Um, So it's it's why it's a little it's a kind of a prehistory of the modern world in a way, a little glimpse of it coming into coming into being for the first time.
0: Well, Stephen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you again, whether you're you're in your closet at home or we're in person. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for having me back. My guest today is Stephen Johnson. His book is Enemy of All Mankind A True Story of Piracy, Power, and History's First Global Manhunt. It's published by Riverhead Books. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We all eat food every day, but what do we know about the food we eat? Which particular foods might help us to the extent? we would consider them medicine. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Well, Daniel, welcome back. Great to be back. Okay, now, people have often said that you are what you eat, but every time we get sick, we say, give me a drug. Can we eat our way into health and we really don't need drugs, or is that just kind of an old wives' tale?
4: Well, I don't think it's an either and or, but we are entering this... Age where we can really recognize and understand food as medicine, and it goes back actually not a new idea to Hippocrates, the famous Greek physician, who said, "Let food buy thy medis- let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food." Um, and we're recognizing now that our our food and our nutrition, particularly our our lack of good nutrition, is killing many of us. Uh, by some estimates, um, it's the poor diets the leading cause of mortality in the United States. Uh, causing more than half a million deaths per year and 5 million deaths around the world. So improving nutrition arguably would make the biggest impact on our healthcare system. I mean, $250 billion or more around cardiovascular disease, uh, $327 million on diabetes, more than almost $2 trillion a year on our cost on obesity, and all those are tied back turn our our nutrition and our dietary risks, Um, you know, not enough fruits and vegetables, uh, too much processed foods, et cetera, all drive this. So we can start to now understand food as medicine and science in new ways and hopefully bend that curve uh, to optimize health for everybody, not just the health of individuals, but even the health of the planet.
0: Who's looking into this? I mean, this is a scientifically, how do you study it?
4: I mean, it's obviously broad. It's harder to to compare. Uh, it's it's straightforward maybe to do a clinical trial on a drug and an outcome, but we're all eating many different things, uh, so you know to to measure food as a drug is a challenge. Uh, my friend Dr. William Lee who has a great book out called "Eat to Beat Disease," and as a vascular biologist, has spent a lot of work in this space. And you know, part of the way we start to do that is is kind of revert back to. Let's start with a test tube example. Um, one element that relates to many diseases is something called angiogenesis. How our blood vessels, uh, small blood vessels, especially are needed to feed a very small tumor and let it grow. And so there's been many approaches to and new drugs Biotech has exploded around the ability to have anti-angiogenic drugs, VEGF inhibitors and others. You're
0: taking the, the blood vessels away so that the blood doesn't feed the tumor.
4: Right. These drugs actually starve the blood vessel supplier, the ability to create new blood vessels, those microvessels that go into a tumor and, and give it the ability to be fed with nutrients from your body and grow. So there's a variety of techniques to, for example, take a little section of an aorta from, let's say, a rat. A section from the heart, put it in the test tube uh, and look at how new blood vessels might form around that. And then you could put in a drug that can turn on or off angiogenesis and measure that activity. So that can be done with a set of drugs, but also can be done with a set of foods. And um, as William Lee and others have sort of brilliantly shown, you can look at a chart of how things like blood vessel inhibition happens from things like tea, to citrus, to certain kinds of berries, uh, to soy extract, and some things like soy have been shown to dramatically lower angiogenesis. And when they've studied uh, patients who already have breast cancer, those who've had a reasonable amount of soy, about as much as you'd have in a cup or two of soy milk, had significantly better outcomes in terms of less recurrence um, and longer survival. So we can tie the sort of science now of drugs and molecules that are in certain healthy foods uh, to outcomes in things as common as cancer.
0: So we're studying basically on the downside to see if there's a better result. And presumably going in, we can prevent some of this.
4: Right. This, If you start to have, for example, put more tomatoes in your diet, tomatoes have been shown to have an anti-angiogenic effect as well. Um, tomatoes, strawberries, blackberries, raspberries, there's a long list. Um, those might help prevent that cancer from remember, getting root in your body. We're all sort of, quote-unquote, cancering all the time, but our immune system knocks it off in the bud, the the angiogenesis doesn't occur. So if we're having a healthier diet, particularly with foods that have anti-angiogenic activity, that again is looking to be quite preventative. There are also diseases where where you want to turn on angiogenesis. So for example, someone who may have had a heart attack, we want to be able to stimulate uh, new blood vessels in their heart. And uh, it turns out that Barley has a component called uh, beta-glucan, beta-D, beta-D-glucan. And if you take barley and turn it into a kind of a pasta and you feed that to rats who have injured hearts, they grow many new blood vessels compared to their control groups. So we may learn to start giving folks after a heart attack or folks who have heart failure for some reason more barley. As a Eat up that example. barley. <laughs> and, it, and it's this is complex because we know let's say even recovery or prevention of heart disease uh, is not just about putting the stent in. Our, our friend, Dr. Dean Ornish has pioneered sort of the idea that it's diet, often a vegan diet, partnered with, partnered with things like yoga and meditation that can even reverse heart disease. So it's, it's not like there's no silver bullet, like just eating uh, more tomatoes or barley is gonna cure things, but combining modalities can help prevent and often reverse uh, certain diseases. And when we use those in combination, uh, hopefully play a, a role in therapy When I went to medical school, I think I had like two hours of courses on nutrition. We'd often rely on our nutritionists when we're rounding in hospitals. But now we're entering this idea of prescribing uh, not just personalized diets to lose weight, but potentially diets that are really tuned for certain types of diseases, cancers, heart disease, etc.,
0: so there's your genes, it's how your body operates, it's uh, the food that you have available to you and you're prepared to eat and the way you're prepared to eat it. I mean, all of these things come together and have to be looked at. So it's a little more complex, I think, than we ever, like, what do you want for lunch? No, no, it's a, it's a bigger picture than that. Yeah,
4: and where do you get your lunch? Do you have a uh, mar- food market from local farms uh, down the street from you, or are you in a relatively food desert where your only options are are processed foods at a, or fast foods, for example? Um, it might mean listening to uh, your sweet tooth and drinking more chocolate. It turns out that cacao, uh, is is uh, quite powerful in stimulating adult stem cells to, to move into the bloodstream. And so one study of 20,000 folks showed that eating seven and a half grams of chocolate per day lowered the risk of heart attack and stroke by almost 40%. Wait
0: a minute, seven and a half grams, how much is that
4: in ounces? Is it chocolate bars?
0: So I don't know. Okay, everybody get yeah. out there <laughs> how much chocolate we get to eat just for our heart health here.
4: Go to your uh, sacred cacao ceremony and you'll get something into that. Or things like omega-3s also stimulate stem cells. In seem to play a role in in um risk or recovery from from diabetes. So um or or those certain foods play a role in cancer stem cells and which stem cells are going to uh respond to treatment, including things like immunotherapy. So it's not just going to be about food as a medicine or food alone or drugs alone, but them I in mean, combination. So something that's been learned lately, a very hot topic in in, in healthcare and cancer is immunotherapy. And it turns out not even response to some of these expensive checkpoint inhibitors and certain drugs, Um, it turns out that your microbiome, the the bugs in your gut, the the sort of 30, almost 40 trillion uh, bacteria that we have in our gut, uh, are different. They're driven mostly by what we eat. And that microbiome population can play a role in whether immunotherapy works or not for you. So there may be some foods that you might take to optimize your gut microbiome so that if you do need an immunotherapy, a checkpoint inhibitor specifically, that you're going to have a much better outcome. So there's really interesting synergies here of what prebiotics you might have that are going to feed your microbiome, um, the probiotics that might tweak your microbiome, and then avoiding certain foods that sort of are helpful. Hurtful to your microbiome, even impact how you metabolize uh, food, your risk for inflammatory bowel disease like crohn's and uh, or even neurologic disorders like parkinson's
0: now let me just ask you, we have our genes we have our our DNA we have the RNA that expresses it we're producing proteins that's that's our body, our machine of our body. Can we really affect what we're born with?
4: well we're born with pretty much one genome. Uh, so you can get your genome sequenced today in 2020 for less than $500, which is pretty amazing. But it's more important what genes are turned on and off, the epigenome. So now we can measure our proteome, which which genes are on and off, which proteins are in our drug in our blood. It might
0: have started with the program, but it doesn't. It actually doesn't produce anything, right? As an example, or yeah, so it produces we, a malfunctioning protein,
4: <laughs> right? And we're learning now that we can potentially swap in and out genes with CRISPR type technologies, and and ideally, as we can now measure our microbiomes, our genomes, our our, um, metabolome, you know, you can now have a connected blood sugar, a blood uh, device that measures your blood sugar continuously, we're starting to personalize our diets. If instead of the fad diet of high fat or low fat or high carb or low carb or keto, you know, Moira, you might need a very different uh, tuned diet than I would to optimize some elements of your health. And we're even seeing companies now offer to check your nutrigenomics and send you vitamin pills that are optimized to you, which I still think is not that relevant because most multivitamins, you pee most of it out anyway. But more <laughs> relevantly...
0: We'll let you get away with that word in this system. Sure. Because it's really important. It's a technical term. <laughs>
4: but now there's these new sort of food delivery services where they'll drop off you know, almost prepackaged meals that you can sort of finish cooking at home. I've seen some companies, one's called Fix, where they're fixing your diet to match your microbiome and your other data. And they'll deliver those very personalized meal kits to you that match you and what your family might really need to do to optimize your diet or in some cases respond to certain diseases.
0: Well, we got a long way to go here, don't we?
4: It's still some, it's pretty simple. Eat your veggies um, <laughs> and uh, avoid uh, Twinkies. Um, everything in moderation, as I always say. It's, Twinkies
0: um, in moderation. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and you have an extra excuse to have dark chocolate now with the flavonoids and, and cacao. So... Um, I think yeah, I think it's an exciting time there's a whole bunch of things happening uh in in food technology which we haven't touched upon like you know plant based meats the the burgers now that taste like burgers and look like burgers the idea of three d printing your meals that have the exact components you need the idea of um you know biosensors uh for example, I just received a device uh that tracks your breath, you blow it in the morning or different times of the day, and it looks at your the ratio of, of CO2 and oxygen in your breath and could look at how you're metabolizing. So if I'm trying to get into a ketogenic state, it can tell me I'm ketogenic or not, and I can use that to help optimize, let's say, a, a ketogenic type diet, which might be helpful for reversing type 2 diabetes. So all these sorts of biosensors, big data, personalization... Blending with culinary food innovations are going to I think really reshape our nutrition and hopefully help uh, the health of the planet. Because some of these new food plant based meats are going to reduce our need for for cows and other things that. Seem and to the ozone it.
0: layer, all yeah. the all the methane they give off. Yes, it's,
4: it's all connected because human health and planetary health are are one and the same.
0: Daniel, thank you so much. See you next week. Eat well. See ya. TechNation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For TechNation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcorn.